Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CERN 2020 grantee meeting. Over the course of the next two days, we're going to be hearing from lots of great researchers and academics um, who are really pushing the field forward. But we want to begin many of these sessions by talking to some of the people who are really at the heart of it, the patients, the patient advocates, and the people who are at the heart of all the research that we're doing. And we're happy to start the day off with two great people here, Frances Saldana, who I'm sure many of you know. She's the President Emeritus of HD Care, and Carissa Brown, who's the Regional Manager at COPE, which is a health scholars program. And before this, she was the Program Director for Arch Care, a long-term care uh, facility for people with Huntington's disease. And uh, Francis, if we can start with you, tell us a bit about your story, because there's one, I think, that really captures the kind of the, the cruelty of this particular Huntington's disease. Yeah, so um, I'm Francis Aldania, and um, the father of my children had Huntington's disease. All three of my children inherited the mutant protein for Huntington's. Um, when he was sick, uh, there was really no treatment or any um, significant um, medications for his for his uh, symptoms. So I was devastated and broken. As it turned out, um, after he died in 1989, all three of my children started showing symptoms uh, for Huntington's. Uh, at that point, I could no longer afford to just be broken. I had to get up off the floor and start trying to learn everything I could about the disease and also to uh, learn about resources that might be out there for, for Huntington's. It was around um, the mid-90s when I met Dr. Leslie Thompson. Uh, at that point, I felt at a loss. There was really nothing for HD patients as far as I could tell. And it wasn't until I learned about her work with Huntington's disease that I felt that I had some sense of direction. I felt like I had an anchor to hold on to for hope, for a treatment, that a treatment might save my children from this devastating and fatal disease. And over the course of the years, what, you found that that wasn't available, right? That, that the treatment just wasn't there. It wasn't there. But with, through research, there was a lot of hope for a treatment. And I, always, I still hope that we will have one in my lifetime. Carissa, you've worked a lot with, with people with Huntington's. How do, you, how do you reassure them? How do you help them at a time where really there isn't not only a cure, but really any effective treatment? That's a great question. I think it's a very challenging situation in working with so many uh, patients that are afflicted by it, and not just the, the people that are afflicted by it, but their caregivers. It's, it's very important to come from a place of support and understanding since this is so, uh, there's very little resources, by the way, of really understanding how to approach it, especially from a long-term care sense, or how to approach this with a quality of life. It really takes a village, and it takes a community of individuals, very much like the, the folks that are together right now, either watching this or the folks that are really working together on the front lines, so to speak, um, through through these caregiver board excuse me, through the board and through caregiver supports, it really comes as a community. And you really have to understand how to approach a person and also with a dignified way. 
in the past working in long-term care and working with folks with Huntington's disease, there's a sense of hope, but there's also a sense of hopelessness. And really working in the middle of those two feelings, it's a really uncomfortable space, but it's a space that needs to be addressed so that folks really understand there are advocates out there. We are working every day. We are making it known that there needs to be a cure. And while there's not a cure, there are supports. And it's really finding those supports and finding those people, those gem, those gemstones, very much like Francis, um, that's really going to push forward and advocate on. And really bringing that sense of community on how can we come together for this population? How can we come together for the progression of this? Because we know the progression is inevitable. And it's really taking a stance, a really empathetic and compassionate stance. How do we work together? How do we advocate? How do we educate? And bringing that awareness to the community is your very first step in supporting. Great. Francis, um, since all this began, you've become a great patient advocate, a great champion for research into Huntington's disease. How, how did that come about and what, what, what have you been able, do you feel, to achieve by doing that? Well, you know, well, trying to uh, find resources and um, educating myself about Huntington's, I, I was really just running around in circles until it was around 2007. Uh, I attended a CIRM meeting with my daughter Margie. And at that point, I remember when I saw the presenters, Hans Kierstad, Dr. Pacifici, Bob Klein, and others, and I heard what they had to say about stem cell research. I, I knew at that moment that there were going to be some great things happening through stem cell research. And that just gave me more courage and more energy to, to keep fighting for my children who were still living at that time. So it was just incredible um, what has happened in the last as far as I know, the last 20 years with stem cell, but I didn't learn about it until 2007. And what do you say when people come to you? Because obviously you're kind of a kind of a pivotal figure in, in the support groups. Um, when people come to you, parents come to you and they talk about the, the loved one, a child of theirs perhaps who's been diagnosed. How, what do you say to them? How do you reassure them? You know, I, I always tell them to have hope, uh, also to educate themselves about the symptoms of Huntington's disease because family members historically have been, uh, they, they call it the, the disease of shame because they don't understand the symptoms and they believe that their person is, uh, their loved one is, is uh, losing their mind or they're acting in a way that is embarrassing because of the, the cognitive the, uh, decline and so forth. So I explained to them that, you know, um, they're dying. They're dying. We need to treat them with respect and dignity and give them the kind of care that you would give any other person who is dying from a fatal disease. And while we're in this moment, you know, be in the moment and create happy times for them, happy, make happy memories for them. And at the same time, you're giving, you're making happy memories for yourself. And this is what I try to do for my children. I, I, I focused on providing spirituality, meaningful social interaction, care, and um, just to make life as happy as I could, but never losing hope that there would be a treatment. But knowing all the time that time was, my, my children were in a race against time. And, you know, 
they lost the race, but I'm still here. So in, in memory of my children, I continue with, on their behalf for their courageous fight to advocate and, and to fight for a, a treatment for Huntington's disease. Carissa, I mean, Huntington's is a rare disease. Most people may have heard of it, but know very little about it. Um, how do you raise awareness? How do you educate people so that they have a better understanding that this is something that could happen to anyone? So I think upon the time when even I didn't know what Huntington's disease was, but I knew very much like Francis had said, it is a race against time. And I'd lost a father to a rare neurodegenerative disease. And I know the feeling and the impact of talking with, with people or even practitioners that are unaware of the progression of a disease state and what that, how that impacts you negatively. And that gave me a really empathetic approach with how can I raise awareness to communities on Huntington's disease so that going back to the comment about the disease of shame, let's lean in to what the symptoms are and why they're happening. And you really do that through advocacy. And even if you have limited resources, using your voice, uh, the power of words, the power of storytelling, and the power of connection is exactly how I was able to build a program. I was able to generate awareness. I was able to develop partnerships all in the name of this is a person here, her story. This is a person here, his story. And then these stories generate and the awareness grows. And as that grows and expands, you get more and more people interested in how can I help? And when people are willing to help because now they understand, now you're creating a connection that we can actually be the conduit to moving toward hopefully a cure, but if no cure, interventions that can give people a better quality of life as they're ailing with this as they progress. Francis, if we could end with you, where you talk about how you got involved in, in the research and everything like that, you're really heavily involved now with, I know, with Leslie Thompson and some of the other researchers out there. How important is it for researchers to have a champion like you, to have people kind of advocating on their behalf so that they feel like the work they're doing is not just important, but that they have a lot of people behind them? It's very important because uh, while they're doing their research and trying to develop clinical trials, uh, if they don't have the patients to participate in these trials, well, we're just, you know, it's a no, it's a no win for anybody. So patients need to be educated. They need to not be afraid to come forward either to, um, you know, they can come forward anonymously, but they need to participate because that's the only way we're going to uh, have a treatment. Uh, otherwise, you know, this could go on forever and, and, uh, and have no treatment for, for our loved ones. Do you feel hopeful? I'm very hopeful. Yeah, I'm very hopeful. I, I know I've been saying since, uh, since 2000 that we'd have a treatment in two years. And then after two years, I said, oh, another two years. And then I said five years and then seven. Now I really feel that it'll be here in two years. <laughs> That's a great note to end this on. Well, Francis, Carissa, thank you both so much for joining us and helping us get this, off, this meeting off to a great start. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Hello there, I'm Ralph Kern, the President and Chief Medical Officer of Brainstorm Cell Therapeutics. It's a real privilege today to make a presentation at the 2020 CIRM grantee meeting. 
and look forward to the discussion after the presentation. We uh, are advancing our cell technology uh, platform, which is a unique product. It's unique because it's autologous and convenient. Our neuron autologous cell therapy uses patients' own cells. The safety and cell persistence of the autologous product is an important characteristic. We use cryopreservation, which essentially creates an off-the-shelf product for each patient. A single bone marrow harvest creates several years of therapy. We have a short cycle time and only seven days from thawing to injection in the clinic. Our product is also consistent and reliable. It does not use animal proteins. There's no xenocontamination, no use of antibiotics. Genetic modifications or viral vectors are used in the manufacturing process. Neuron is culture rescued after thawing which creates a high cell viability and consistent performance characteristics. Finally, we use cell potency as a release criteria. Our platform technology is, in, is also unique in that we have consistent read-through of biologic measures from in vitro through animal in vitro testing, and finally in human biomarker studies. The three characteristics of our cells are that of neuroprotection, neurotrophic support, and immunomodulation. These have been consistently seen in all of our uh, preclinical work and also in our phase two ALS biomarker studies. Finally, the consistent safety across clinical trials and across indications supports platform technology. Our platform, as you can see, is expanding. Our ALS program is the most advanced and we'll have data uh, from this study at the, end of, at the end of November. We have a progressive MS trial that's fully enrolled and will be fully dosed by the end of this year. And we're looking at advancing our therapeutic pipeline in Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases as well. We have preliminary preclinical work of MSCNTF derived exosomes in ARDS, which is an area of very uh, high interest these days given the COVID pandemic. Our manufacturing process is fast, consistent, and reproducible. Cells are derived from the bone marrow where they're harvested and sent to the manufacturing site for purification and expansion. Following uh, this 12-day process, we cryopreserve an intermediate product, which creates an off-the-shelf product for each individual, enabling retreatment for three years or longer. The cells are then thawed, expanded, and induced to differentiate into MSCNTF cells, which secrete high levels of neurotrophic factors and other repair molecules, and this second step in the process takes approximately seven days. Our cells are then loaded into a syringe and 100 to 125 million cells are then administered via intrathecal administration in a lumbar puncture procedure, which can be done as an outpatient as well. And uh, this is uh, a well-characterized uh, process that we have repeated many times in our clinical trials. And we're very uh, confident that this can be a practical approach uh, following uh, successful commercialization and approval. The characteristics of the cells are very important. In addition to uh, very high purity, the cells are uh, demonstrated to secrete high levels of neurotrophic factors, including GDNF, BDNF, VEGF, and HDF. These are 5 to 10x changes, and these contribute to their mechanism of action. In addition, the cells have known immunomodulatory effects. They reduce uh, cytokines, but in addition are also have also been shown to expand T regulatory cells. And this is data from our open label phase one and two A trials that were published in uh, JAMA Neurology. 
We've shown in vitro that the cells can increase T regulatory cells. And you can see on the right when PBMCs are co-cultured with the cellular product that this has been uh, consistently demonstrated. So in summary, our cells have three unique characteristics. One is addressing neuronal degeneration. We've confirmed this in our phase two trial by an up to 60% reduction in caspase three in the CSF after a single treatment. The cells also restore neurotrophic support that is a consequence of loss of astrocyte function. And we have demonstrated this by cargo delivery in our phase two trial and also in our preclinical studies, both in vitro and in vivo. And thirdly, the third axis of treatment is modifying immunomodulation, modifying neuroinflammation, microglial activation. We've shown consistent immunomodulation by a reduction of MCP1, SDF1, and chitotriacidase. Our ALS program is, uh, has a long history. We initially completed phase one and two A uh, open label trials where we determined dose and route of administration. That was published in JAMA Neurology, as I mentioned. Following this, we completed a randomized placebo-controlled phase two trial involving 48 patients with a single dose of our treatment, intrathecal. And this was published last year in the journal Neurology. And finally, we have completed enrollment and dosing of a 200-patient phase three trial. And this uh, will generate top-line data by the end of November. Our phase two trial design has a randomization event. There's a run-in period of 12 weeks and 48 patients are then randomized three to one to receive either treatment or placebo by intrathecal administration. We collected CSF before and after, and we followed the patients at monthly intervals to determine safety, tolerability, the functional changes, including the ALS FRS slope, slow vital capacity. And we pre-specified the fast progressor criteria where we uh, required that individuals decline by a minimum of two points in the three-month run-in period. The study showed remarkable safety. There were no uh, treatment-related serious adverse events. There were no dropouts due to SAEs. And the most common adverse event was transient mild in severity and related to the procedures. We measured function as our primary outcome measure. We used a 48-point ALS functional rating scale and this has been well validated and regulatory approved. It involves four domains involving respiration, bulbar function, fine motor function, and gross motor function. In our phase two trial, we looked at a change in rate of disease progression determined at 24 weeks. In our phase three study, we'll be looking at a responder definition and looking at the change in ALS FRS slope at 28 weeks. This is an example of the data that we've obtained in our phase two trial and showing how we analyze the outcomes. As you can see on the top in a treated patient, this individual had a rate of decline prior to treatment of minus 1.08 points per month. After treatment, the rate of decline decreased and was 0.4 points per month. This individual would be considered a responder. And you can see if they had continued on the same trajectory, the outcome would be very different. Uh, a patient who received placebo is illustrated on the bottom. You can see in the run-in period, the slope was minus 0.57 after treatment, it was, it continued um, maybe a little bit worse, but this would be a non-responder. And you, we can measure uh, both the change in slope, we can measure the slope after treatment, and we can also measure score changes after baseline as outcome measures. In our phase two trial, you can see that the slope change 
In other words, the positive change in the treated uh, individuals, which are in the blue bars, shows that there is a change in the rate of disease progression in a positive direction. Placebo patients didn't show this. When we looked at the total group, we saw an immediate effect. In the rapid progressor group, it was longer and of greater magnitude. When we looked at a responder definition of a one and a half point per month improvement in this rate of disease progression, we saw that there was an improvement in the overall population, but this was accentuated in the rapid progressor group, again defined by those who had two points per more decline in the three-month run-in period. And based on this data, we uh, proceeded to a uh, biomarker analysis that to provide additional support for our clinical observations. What we were able to show in our phase two trial was that we were able to deliver cargo. And this included VEGF, HGF, LIF, and other biomarkers. You can see that the placebo group on the bottom did not show any cargo delivery. We then asked a second question, in addition to cargo delivery, can we affect pharmacodynamic biomarkers, in this case, inflammatory biomarkers? We're able to show that after a single treatment, two weeks later, we're able to reduce MCP1 levels in the CSF by 40% with no effect of placebo. We also showed a reduction of SDF1-alpha by 22%, a reduction of caspase 3 by up to 60%. And we then asked a third question, which is, in addition to cargo delivery, and reduction in a pharmacodynamic biomarker, could we correlate uh, these characteristics together? And the answer is yes. On the top, you can see that there's a correlation between the MCP1 levels on the x-axis post-treatment and the VEGF uh, cargo delivery on the y-axis, showing that there's a correlation between uh, cargo delivery and pharmacodynamic biomarkers. On the bottom, we asked the next question, which is, is there a correlation between the pharmacodynamic biomarker of MCP1 on the x-axis and the improvement scores on the y-axis, which correlate to those graphs that I had shown you earlier? And the answer to that was yes, that those who had lower MCP1 levels post-treatment had greater uh, improvement scores or changes in rate of disease progression after treatment. So this was very encouraging. It led us to design a well-powered uh, phase three trial which has a randomization event following an initial run-in period. We have a bone marrow aspiration in the run-in period where the product is acquired. And then individuals are then randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive treatment or placebo. Unlike phase two, this involves uh, three treatments. And also uh, the inclusion criteria specifies that individuals must be fast progressors. So individuals must have declined by three points or more in the three-month run-in period. The study is 28 weeks in duration. There's monthly assessments. In spite of the COVID pandemic, we were able to continue treatments throughout, um, throughout the hospital restrictions. And I'm very happy to say that the study is uh, fully enrolled and fully dosed. And we have a few remaining assessments leading to top line data by the end of November. What are we looking for in the study? We're looking at efficacy. In other words, the change in function as uh, measured by the ALS functional rating scale. Obviously, we're looking at safety, slow vital capacity, which is a measure of uh, functional measure of breathing, tr uh, survival, both in terms of tracheostomy free survival and mortality will be measured, as well as seven serial biomarker assessments of CSF and plasma. And this study, I may say, is one of the uh, has one of the most robust collections of biomarkers of any clinical trial that we're aware of. 
And we believe that the combination of the very careful clinical assessments and uh, correlation of those clinical assessments with biomarker values will help uh, confirm uh, the value of this treatment in ALS. I must say that we are uh, fortunate to have great partners in addition to CIRM, and I want to recognize the funding that we've received and the support we've received all along from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Uh, We want to also call out the City of Hope and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which have been wonderful partners to us in terms of manufacturing and product support. I also want to call out attention to the treatment centers and universities that we're very privileged to work with, including University of Massachusetts, Massachusetts General Hospital, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, UC Irvine, Cedars-Sinai, and uh, Sutter Health or CPMC in San Francisco. Without the collaboration of CIRM, our manufacturing sites, and these wonderful centers, I don't think we would be having this discussion today. And we really want to acknowledge that, uh, that support. With that, I thank you for your attention today. I'm very happy that we've been able to complete the study uh, in in our timelines, and we expect top-line data by the end of November. Uh, We uh, appreciate the support and would love to take any questions during the Q&A session with you uh, that follows. Thank you very much. I'm going to speak today about a uh, strategy for replacing neurons uh, to treat Parkinson's disease. This is work that was supported by uh, CIRM over many years. So giving you an overview of what we've been working on, we are planning an autologous neuron therapy. And by autologous, I mean that the cells that will be transplanted, the neurons will be transplanted, will will match the individual they're being transplanted to. So you can see over on the left, there's a Venn diagram that shows that the way that we figured out how to do this is from a long history of both learning how to culture and differentiate pluripotent stem cells, but also a long history of genomics, which we have applied to analyze the cells so that we could make this an efficient and safe process. The diagram on the right illustrates in uh, broad terms what we're doing. We harvest cells from people we reprogram those cells to induce pluripotent stem cells. Then we generate dopamine neurons from those stem cells, and then we uh, transplant them back to the patient. We haven't done that yet, of course, but that's what we plan to do when we start a clinical trial. So the reason that Parkinson's disease is a good candidate for cell replacement therapy is that there is no disease-modifying treatment. There's no treatment available that can reverse the progress of the disease. The disease is progressive neurodegeneration, And the motor symptoms, which you're probably all familiar with, the the, uh, freezing and the tremor, are caused by the loss of a single cell type in a specific part of the brain. This means that it is much more amenable to transplantation replacement therapy than a lot of other neurological diseases that have more diffuse pathology, that there's lots more of the brain involved. It's caused by the loss of neurons in a part of the brain called the substantia nigra, By the time people are diagnosed, they've already lost more than 50% of their dopamine neurons. Parkinson's disease is very common. It's the second most common neurological disorder with 10 million patients worldwide. The therapy that's been around since the 1960s and some versions of it is still being used today. It allows people to have their dopamine neurons work better, but it doesn't stop the progressive loss of the neurons. 
So it's only temporary. The loss of the dopamine neurons uh, results in a loss of a circuit in the brain that controls fine movements. So you can see on the left, the dopamine neurons, once those are gone, that circuit between the substantia nigra and the part of the brain called the striatum is weakened. And what we want to do is to restore that circuit. There's a lot of history here, unlike a lot of other stem cell therapies that are being developed right now, we actually can can draw on a rich source of earlier studies. And these were studies that were done in the 1990s and early 2000s, in which more than 300 people who had Parkinson's disease were transplanted with fetal brain tissue. That is a little bit of the brain, as you can see in that illustration, a tiny fetus of uh, six to 10 weeks old. A tiny little bit of that uh, brain was uh, dissected out and then transplanted into the the target of the substantia nigra. That's important because that's a pretty large thing to to transplant the cells to. The substantia nigra is very small. And during development, substantia nigra needs to grow its connections into the uh, striatum over time. And we want to avoid that process. So we put we, we and everyone else wants to put the cells straight into the striatum. On the uh, right is a cover of a book that was written about these early studies by Kurt Fried, who was one of the pioneers in the transplant for neurodegenerative disease field. Um, it's quite a remarkable book, very personal, and I, I certainly recommend that people read it if you want to understand how this all started. So the problems with the fetal cell transplants were that the results were variable. Uh, The good news was that there was no harm done to the brain by the transplants. In fact, hundreds and hundreds of people transplanted with uh, cells to the same part of their brain, fetal tissue to the same part of their brain. Um, And in some cases, it was a remarkable improvement. The symptoms were completely reversed, and people were sustained for the rest of their lives without any motor problems for more than 20 years in some cases. So it's clear that when it works, it works really well. The problem is that it uh, didn't work every time. In fact, it worked in the minority of times. In many cases, there was no effect on the Parkinson's disease symptoms at all. And in other cases, the transplanted tissue caused a temporary but troubling dyskinesia, which is uncontrolled tremor. So the problem with fetal tissue transplants really was the lack of quality control. There's not very much fetal tissue available, and you need at least three fetuses for each transplant, each side of the brain. When you dissect the tissue, it's uh, not exactly easy. These are very, very small fetuses. It's very variable. And you can't analyze the tissue before you transplant it because there's no way to expand it. So we um, and others have turned to the idea of using uh, pluripotent stem cells to try to do the same sort of experiment, but more reliably and more effectively. And as you all know, uh, the first human uh, pluripotent stem cells were made in, published in 1998 by um, Thompson and his group. They were derived from blastocyst stage embryos, and uh, they gave rise to these cells, which would essentially, they were pluripotent, they could give rise to all cell types in the body. In 2007, there was a paper published that showed that skin biopsies from people and other cell types that you could harvest from people 
uh, you could grow those cells in a culture dish. And then by adding reprogramming factors, transcription factors that change the whole epigenetic state of the cells could result in the production of cells that were exactly like embryonic stem cells, but they came from individuals instead of from a, a single blastocyst. And um, Shinya Yamanaka won the Nobel Prize, I think rightly, for that work in 2012. The reason why pluripotent stem cells are valuable for neuronal replacement, especially for Parkinson's disease, is that they provide an unlimited source of cells, unlike fetal tissue. They can uh, differentiate into any cell type in the body. Um, it turns out that dopamine neurons are one of the simpler cell types to differentiate. Um, we can control their fate so that we can reproducibly make the same cell type every time from different starting populations. And uh, most importantly, we can do comprehensive quality control because we don't have to uh, transplant all of the cells that we generate. We can use most of them for quality control. This is what they look like when the cells have, have uh, formed in from a iPS cell line. These are dopamine neurons. The green cells you can see are connected with all the other cells, and they remarkably uh, become quite mature in a culture dish if we keep them long enough. So I told you that we weren't the only people doing this. So this is a sort of an overview, which is published in 2017, which was the result of a meeting we had in uh, Kyoto in Japan, in which four worldwide groups came together and shared our plans for our particular version of making uh, pluripotent stem cells into dopamine neurons for Parkinson's disease. There is a European group uh, led by Roger Barker and Malin Parmar. Uh, they're using embryonic stem cells. Similarly, the project that was initiated by Lorenz Studer in New York also used embryonic stem cells. And uh, slightly different, uh, Jun Takahashi in Kyoto in uh, Yamanaka's group decided to use donor iPS cells, a single iPS cell line rather than a single ES cell line. The difference between those three and ours is that um, they all require immunosuppression. And immunosuppression is something that you uh, give to people when they get organ transplants. It's not something you want to take lightly. So we, from the very beginning, decided we want to have cells that match the patient so that we would not need to immunosuppress them. This is a comparison of the two approaches. Obviously, if you use allogeneic cells, which are the single cell line for everybody, those cells will be rejected if there's no immunosuppression. And we won't have that problem. And we actually have confirmed that in our in vitro studies. Manufacturing is uh, scale up to one cell type, one cell line into hundreds of billions of cells. Whereas we do scale out, which means we make very few cells, just millions of cells, but we make them for each patient. The reason why that's important is that if you do a lot of expansion of cells, you get uh, genetic mutations almost inevitably uh, because pluripotent stem cells, as I'll show you in a moment, will acquire mutations that are associated with cancer if you culture them long enough. Since we don't have to grow the cells very long, there's a much less uh, lesser uh, probability of that happening. We also will be able to redose patients if necessary. Um, if, for example, we haven't given them enough cells to start with, in theory, after a few years or so, after they've, uh, we're, we're certain what the outcome is, that we should be able to transplant the same cells back into the same person. There is a method that people are developing right now for making the cells invisible to the immune system, and we don't need to do that. There are some downsides to that, which I won't discuss in this seminar.
So I told you that expansion of pluripotent stem cells is a problem, and this is because they acquire cancer-causing mutations as they proliferate. And my kind of crude diagram on the bottom shows that what happens is that there's evolution in the incubator as cells grow. Some of them die as cultures grow. Some of them become resistant, which are those bright blue cells with the little red resistors in them. And over time, those cells, because they're resistant, they eventually will take over the culture, while the other cells will all die off over time. The mutations that we see, uh, the first one we saw was P53, which is a mutation that's found in 50% of cancers. It's definitely not something you want to use in transplants. Uh, this is just a, a snapshot of some of the work that we've done and others that showed that we found these mutations in embryonic stem cells and in iPS cells. And it, is, it just shows that they're everywhere. These are hundreds of different cell lines from uh, many, many different sources, and they all acquire P53 mutations um, over time. So the reason uh, that this ge genomics is so important is that we want to avoid having any mutations in the cells, but we also want to make sure that the cells we make from each individual are the same every single time. So the outline on the left-hand side shows you that we start with uh, somatic cells, make iPS cells. We use a, an assay called pluritest, um, which uses RNA sequencing, in order to analyze those cells to make sure that they are pluripotent before we start. And then we do another assay, we differentiate those cells and do another assay, which we call neurotest, to make sure that the cells are at precisely the right stage for transplantation. So using these tests, that means that we can do the same thing with hundreds and eventually thousands of patients uh, relatively cheaply, and we can be assured that we have the right cells every time. The safety of the cells is assessed by doing whole genome sequencing and what is called uh, SNP genotyping. SNP genotyping, we're doing essentially the same thing that 23andMe does. It tells you whether the genome has had any errors occur in it. And so we do the whole genome sequencing three times during the procedure and the SNP genotyping. So we are using tools that are as thorough as we can possibly do without, with, and still keep the expense down to make sure that the cells are the right cell type, the right cells for the transplant at every stage, and also the, uh, that the cells don't carry any mutations that will cause any problems with the cells after they've been transplanted. I'm gonna show this to you, but it, uh, you don't need to grasp the entire thing. This is just a, an overview. If you look across the bottom, embryonic development starts with pluripotency. The cells are pluripotent to start with. Then they go through a stage called specified in which they have fewer options. They can't make every cell type in the body. They, they're limited. And then the next stage, which is the determined stage, is the stage at which the cells don't have any choice, that they have to make only one cell type, but they're not that cell type yet, and that's really important. And then eventually they become differentiated, and there's no return from that state. And there's also no return from the determined state. They can't go backwards. So this illustrates a tool that we developed with CIRM funding over time uh, called Pluritest, which used RNA sequencing to define any cell population, uh, to define it as pluripotent or not pluripotent. There are a number of papers published on this. It is now the most popular method in the world for uh, making sure that your cells are pluripotent before you start. And that's probably one of the reasons that it's, it's popular. It has had 30,000 uses so far, is that it's free. It's at pluritest.org, and uh, anybody can use it. We also have a, we filed a patent on this um, a while back. 
We also have this RNA sequencing method, as I mentioned, to predict the fate of cells at their, that they will become functional dopamine neurons after transplant. And this is a little trickier because, uh, as you see again through embryonic development, the cells are pluripotent and then specified. And now we're trying to catch the determined state, which is the state at which the cells aren't quite dopamine neurons yet, but will be dopamine neurons. The reason we need to do that, and the reason we need to be so precise, is that cells at that stage are the ideal state for transplantation. And at that stage, when we transplant them, we'll have the maximum survival of the cells, and they will also have the maximum chance of growing their axons out into the entire stiatum. So as a summary about this work, we have started from the very beginning deciding that we wanted to do an autologous therapy as soon as iPS cells became available. There are advantages to this. There's no rejection, no immunosuppression. We think there will be better engraftment because of the cues that are are seen by cells when they grow during embryonic development that self uh, likes to recognize self. We can redose the cells if necessary, and our smaller-scale manufacturing will reduce the cost and avoid genomic instability. So it is important to say, to tell people that this greatly reduces the cost of therapy because our quality control allows us to reject cells at an early stage before we've invested any uh, reagents and manpower into the uh, progression of those cells. So we make decisions early based on the genomics, and uh, that allows us to be sure that every single time, without spending a lot of money, that we can produce the right cells for a particular patient. Right now, we are doing our pre-IND studies for the FDA, and if these go well, we plan to start a clinical trial in about a year. I want to acknowledge the support of um, probably actually hundreds of people, but these are the people who are most prominent. Andres Brayal was my co-founder of Aspen and the, uh, the leader of this project for a long period of time. Candace, Ha, and Roy have been with me for more than 10 years. Uh, Cullen, Aditi, and Jason uh, are all trained as uh, CIRM interns in my lab, and they went away, and then I hired them again afterwards. So that speaks to the value of CIRM's training programs for creating the workforce that we need for uh, companies like Aspen. Our support is from CIRM, of course, uh, from a foundation called Summit for Stem Cell Foundation. We've had NIH support, support from the Silverstein Foundation, and Aspen Neuroscience has investment from a number of uh, investment uh, companies, including Domain, OrbiMed, and uh, interestingly, Sam Altman, who is an uh, a, uh, artificial intelligence expert. I wanted to close by... Uh, just uh, this is my only opportunity I'll ever get to do this is to list all the grants that I've had from CIRM over the period of 2000 and um, it was actually around 2007, I think 2008 through 2020. And this starts with the most recent one, which is the focused grant on autologous therapy for Parkinson's disease. But it goes all the way back to the technology grants that we got from CIRM that allowed us to develop Pluritest and then Neurotest. The grants that are listed at the bottom, there are uh, five of them, are grants in which I contributed, but I wasn't the principal investigator. But they all allowed me to apply our knowledge of pluripotent stem cells to a variety of other diseases. So with that, I will close. Thank you very much for listening.
Hi, everyone. It's really great to uh, be part of this symposium. I'm going to be presenting work on our uh, CIRM-funded CLIN-1 project, uh, where we're using a stem cell-based therapy for Huntington's disease. And Huntington's disease is a CAG repeat expansion disease. And what that means is that within the gene called Huntington is a repeating CAG unit shown here. And in the disease itself, we all carry that repeat, but in the disease itself, that is expanded beyond a certain threshold that when translated into the protein then is expanded and creates an abnormally long stretch of glutamines in the protein. And there's a range of these repeats that occur in human disease. So for instance, when you have very long repeats up towards 100, above 60, that would result in younger onset Huntington's disease. And typical HD is somewhere in the 40 to 60 repeat range, which would translate into adult onset. Typically, individuals are affected between the ages of 35 and 50. Uh, when they're in the prime of life, they have ch young children typically are in the midst of their careers. And at this point in time, there's really there's no FDA approved treatments that change the course of the disease. So there's a very significant unmet medical need for Huntington's disease uh, treatments. And the disease itself is characterized by this very progressive impairment in the ability to control movement. Typically, this is chorea or dance-like movements, which I'll show you in a minute. And there's a decline in cognition, um, being able to multitask, carry out daily tasks, carry out your job, and psychiatric well-being. In the brain itself, it's characterized by uh, neuronal dysfunction. So the cells in the brain, the neurons in the brain, become less and less able to function appropriately. There's loss of medium spiny neurons in the striatum and, and atrophy of the cortex. And very notably there is, and this is of relevance for later on in the talk, there's a lack of connectivity between the cortex and the striatum. The individuals lose those connections within the brain that, that allow appropriate function. It's caused by a single mutation, but it's a very complex disease. So in the brain itself, there's widespread effects. Uh, there's loss of structure within the striatum, as I mentioned, particularly the medium spiny neurons. And there's overall atrophy or shrinking of the cortex, but other brain areas are also affected. This is just a slice from a um, postmortem sample of brain from an affected individual and one from someone who died of HD. And what our goal then is, is to really find treatments that we can start in this early period before onset of symptoms. And the symptoms come on gradually, as I mentioned, but progressively with uh, the, the movement disorder, cognitive impairment, uh, and psychiatric dysfunction. And really, there's a very early loss of functional abilities that typically precedes the overt symptoms that you see with Huntington's disease. So we'd really like to get in and treat as early as possible and multiple cellular processes are affected in Huntington's. This is just a video taken in Venezuela where there's a very large population of Huntington's patients. And you can see this very characteristic movement disorder, general wasting that occurs in disease. And this is a progressive ending in death, typically between 15 and 20 years after diagnosed onset. And this is very end stage um, disease shown here where 
again, there's this profound wasting that goes on in the disease. So first of all, I'd like to acknowledge the investigators that are all part of this project. It really does take a village to do this kind of work. It's difficult work, as everyone knows in this meeting. And uh, we have a large team at UCI. Uh, it's led by Jack Reedling in my group here at UCI. Um, Yuna Maison is a project manager that assists with everything in the project as well. And a number of individuals in the lab who work on the mouse studies and molecular studies. Neil Hermanowitz was our clinician here, uh, now Anna Morinkova. Edmanuki, neuropathologist, Jefferson Chen is a surgeon who will be doing the clinical trials. And we, this is part of a larger collaboration with UCLA, Michael Levine and Marie-Francoise Chesselet, Charles Meschel at OHSU, and then uh, the team at UC Davis, Gerhard Bauer and Brian Fury, who have generated the GMP uh, cells. Um, Vicki Wheelock has been helping us quite a bit, and our program officer, Lisa Kadick. A number of clinical and basic science advisors to help us through this. The GLP studies done at Charles River, uh, and we have a number of collaborations in the community through HDSA, HD Care, and of course, this project is funded by CIRM. So, what we're using is uh, are these ESI 017 derived neural stem cells, and these are from a was from BioTime, now from Ajax. And we're taking these multipotent neural stem cells that can differentiate into either glia or neuronal precursors and uh, glia or neurons and have established a robust differentiation protocol through with Gerhard and Brian at UC Davis. That involves a rosette formation and manual dissection step followed by expansion of the NSCs. And we've now developed a protocol for the clinical application with these cells with culturing for a period of time, harvesting, bringing into formulation media, and then shipping to the clinical site, and uh, have established parameters with flow, qPCR, Nestin as a anchor for flow, and karyotype sterility stability. And we're developing a panel based on single-cell RNA-seq that we can use as we move forward. So the experimental design that we've used over the years to test efficacy and mechanisms, the general processes that occur following transplantation is to transplant these GMP-grade human neural stem cells, the ESI-017 derived, into directly into the striatum of mice. And these are HD model mice, which I'll get into in a minute. We implant 100,000 per hemisphere, test behavior, and then collect tissue in the short-lived mice. This is after about four to five weeks and then we analyze the tissue for cell survival, differentiation, and molecular markers of HD. Typically what we see when we implant these is this sort of clump of cells. They don't tend to disperse widely, and this seems to be a characteristic of using the ES-derived cell NSCs in mouse tissue. The initial trials were done in the R62 model, and this is a mouse model, one of the first mouse models for Huntington's disease that expresses just a fragment of the um, Huntington gene and Huntington protein, but it is a piece that's very highly toxic and contains this expanded repeat. So we treat mice at a, between five and six weeks with the um, surgical implantation and let that go until they're a 10 weeks old, at which time they're sacrificed. During that period, they undergo a number of different behavioral tests. This includes rotor rod, running wheel, 
pull test, grip strength, and some memory and cognition. And we find significant behavioral improvement in many of these outcome measures, as well as improved electrophysiological impairments. And this was published uh, in stem cell reports. We also see that these cells survive in vivo and they differentiate. And during this short time period where we only have them in the mice for about four to five weeks, we tend to see them uh, differentiate into double cortin positive cells. So immature uh, neuronal populations. We see some uh, co-localization with beta-3 tubulin and MAP2. You can see with co-localization light blue uh, with the human cytosolic marker, but we don't see mature neurons. So we do not see overlap with new N, for instance. So again, during that time frame, they tend to uh, differentiate into immature neurons and primarily into neuronal populations. We really don't see much in the way of glia, for instance. We also see that there's an effect on mutant Huntington accumulation in the mouse. So this is showing, this is a Western blot just showing accumulation of protein in the HD brain. And when we have, uh, this shows it in the mice, and when we treat with NSCs, we see a significant reduction in this. And this is, we believe, a, a very toxic form of Huntington that is found in the brain. We also see reduction in inclusions. We also find that there's a benefit potentially through the expression of BDNF, which is a trophic factor in the brain. And what we find is expression from the NSCs of BDNF when they differentiate in vivo. And this is with vehicle and with the NSCs. And believe that this is potentially compensating for the impaired cortical striatal connections that I mentioned previously uh, in the brains of these mice. We then went on and tested this in a long-term mouse model that lives for up to two years and had these implanted for eight months. Again, all the behavioral assays. So this is a full-length mouse model that has a longer-term pathogenesis. And we find very significant behavioral improvement, for instance, in this running wheel test, where you can see the vehicle down here where they're not able to perform, and the NSC treated are up here with the wild types. They also express neuronal markers after eight months in vivo. So this just shows that there's co-localization with new N uh, in these cells. So they've differentiated two mature neurons. And some of these even differentiate into medium spiny neurons, the, the cells that are most profoundly affected in the disease. And this is just co-staining with uh, DARP32 and CTIP2, which are markers for MSNs, and with mature neuronal markers. What's really exciting as well is that they seem to potentially form synaptic connections with the host. So this would be, for instance, a synapse with a connection to a mouse cell and also human-to-human -human connections. And they, they appear to even, this one appears to be coming from the cortex, so it's making connections with the endogenous host. And you can see this again here where these are the mouse cells that do not stain for the, the human marker forming connections with these NSCs and with the NSCs here. They also seem to be able to display mature neuronal properties at the level of neuroelectrophysiology, and I'm not going to be going into any of this in any detail, but you can see that there's um, sodium currents that are reflective of mature cells. Uh, these are some of the immature, for instance here, immature neurons that are transplanted. These are endogenous neurons, and with 
some of these larger mature NSCs we find, human NSCs, you start to see some of the synaptic properties or electrophysiological properties of mature neurons, which was extremely exciting. We also see some rescue of membrane and synaptic properties of the host MSNs. So for instance, shown here is effects on uh, membrane properties, just show one example where here's uh, the input resistance wild type with uh, just vehicle alone and then with the transplanted cells, it goes back to the wild type levels. So where we're at now is uh, performing IND enabling activities and preclinical safety evaluation. So we're looking at long-term safety and tumorigenicity with the mice, and this is in progress at Charles River. Spiking studies, again, in progress. We've just completed a, a delivery and placement study of the NSCs in non-human primates with UC Davis, and I'll show a little bit from that. Uh, and then our goal is to file an IND and perform clinical startup activities. So just to show very, very quickly, we had an three non-human primate brains implanted with human NSCs for a month. They did not show any abnormalities during gross pathological examination, and the cells survived, and some even differentiated into immature neurons, again shown with this double cortin staining. And uh, some, again, they, some of them differentiated into immature neurons, where you can see this more clearly here with the human KU80 marker and double cortin. So where we are now also is we've um, worked with an international consortium to facilitate stem cell-based therapies for HD that's called Stem Cells for HD. This was a meeting we had in 2018 at UCI. And really this is to help the community to facilitate preclinical assessments, what we need to have in place, the clinical challenges, including immunosuppression, trial design, the stage of the HD patient, and so this has really uh, been helpful for the community. It's, it's um, in progress. And a lot of the patients that we'll be, uh, we'll be testing initially will come from Enroll HD, which is a longitudinal study of Huntington's patients all over the world and really is an incredible resource for these kinds of trials. So thank you very much for your attention and um, look forward to questions in the discussion. I think what's come out of that uh, is this uh, consideration of the kind of three different things that can happen when you when you transplant cells. One is to modify the environment uh, that the cells go into. And I think Ralph really uh, put that forward nicely. Um, that could be through growth factor release, reducing toxins, or even just like an anti-inflammatory effect to the cells. Um, and the second two talks is more about <clears throat> attempting to replace the neurons in the brain, which is far more challenging uh, but somehow more rewarding in some sense because you're really putting a new neuron in. Um, and then, as Leslie mentioned, uh, you have to get it to connect and Genie. So those are the challenges of, of neuronal replacement. Uh, but when you put a neuron in, you're not usually putting a purified neuron in. It's often got astrocytes associated with it and other cell types. So even though it's a neuron graft, it could be having some of those modifying environment effects as well that we don't really understand. In other words, some of the cells that Leslie put in might release growth factors that have an effect. So it's not really as simple, or even Genie's IPS cells may have some other cell types. So it's never really as simple, unfortunately, as you know, the neurons doing it or the cells releasing a, a product is doing it. But I think that's one of the challenges that we can discuss regarding mechanisms when you put these cells in the brain. It's a very complex system. And then finally, the third 
The third thing that probably is happening is it's a combination effect, is that particularly for the neuronal transplants, it's not just the neurons connecting, it's probably a mo modifying environment as well. And I think as Ralph pointed out, um, the, the MSCs have a range of different effects. And I think he mentioned at the end there, this, this exciting area of exosomes, maybe the, maybe the cells aren't required. You just need the exosomes that they, they pump out. Uh, and that's an extreme uh, modifying effect. So, you know, that was my uh, short introduction. It's also nice to hear from the patient uh, advocacy groups, uh, quite uh, amazing stories there and how these advocacy groups, particularly for Huntington's, but also for Parkinson's and other diseases have driven a lot of this work that CIRM has, has funded. And I think the patients are really at the heart of all this. And Leslie, you may remember those old meetings where, well, where we all got together, first of all, and we all had legs, um, but also um, where the patients used to come to the same meeting and, and, and the World Huntington's Association used to do that. And I'm not sure it happens so much anymore, but you'd hear from the patients and the scientists at the same meeting and they could interact. And I miss those, I miss those meetings. Okay, I'm gonna roll now into uh, question and answers. I think detecting cells after transplant is very important. So Jeannie, do you, do you think in, when you get to your trial stage, uh, have you thought about how you're gonna detect the cells uh, when or if the patient comes to post-mortem, you get that opportunity? Oh yeah, definitely. Post-mortem, that'll be easy. Um, while they're alive, uh, that's gonna be more challenging because we don't wanna alter the cells. We don't wanna label them in some way, at least not now. Uh, for our first FDA-approved trial, we uh, are gonna keep the cells um, unchanged. Uh, we're not going to do any genetic um, changes in them. But long term, um, should they, those cells be uh, shown to be safe, then we could actually label them and look, for example, markers in the blood to see whether the cells have escaped. Um, it's very hard in the brain, though, to um, get a live look. Um, what we are doing is um, some PET imaging which allows us to see the, uh, how active the cells are in the brain with a, a two-deoxyglucose two mapping and also some uh, dopamine transport. Thanks, now that's a good point with dopamine neurons because they're ectopic, so they shouldn't be there, so they'll make the dopamine and light up in the little patch, so that's, that's easy. Leslie, have you thought about that for the Huntington's model as well? I haven't come up with an answer yet, but it's uh, really very similar to what Gene said in that um, we don't have any markers for when they're alive, when they're post-mortem. There's things that we can test because it's, it is um, non-autologous. We can, we can test this for the cells, the presence of the cells. And there are uh, PET ligands we can use just for general activity and presence of active medium-strand neurons. But at this point, we can't tell. I think it could be the PET comes to the rescue a little bit for everybody. Yeah. If you design ligands that specifically hit those cells, particularly for the brain transplants, not so much in the CSF, it's a little trickier. Right. But, you know, I think we're underutilizing that technology. I know in the, in the Bjorklund transplants and the Lund, they did use uh, raclopride and other agents uh, uh, that would bind to dopamine receptors. So, so maybe right. we could be more creative in there and maybe there'll be a CIRM initiative for that to come up. Yeah, we've come a long way since the uh, Bjorklund transplants <clears throat> with that kind of technology. And you can now apply AI um, in order to analyze the, um, the brain uh, images in an unbiased way, which yeah, is that's very, very useful. Good point. All right, I've got another question here, um, and this is for, kicking off for Ralph. When you test peptides for a protective T-cell response, how do you detect for T-cell cytokine secretion of this response? What kind of biomarkers are you looking at, Ralph? Yeah, so um, the... 
Immunological biomarkers are really quite developed and consistent and can be measured in uh, both serum and CSF. What, what we're doing is we're measuring paired samples. So we're looking at uh, CSF and uh, serum or plasma. And uh, the ones that we look at are traditionally the ones that are uh, cytokines that are known to cause damage. So, you know, the various interferons and um, uh, also, uh, there's a biomarker that's of great interest called MCP1, which is a chemokine. Uh, it seems to signal uh, immune cells to enter the nervous system to produce damage. There's a lot of new information about the damage that it does on its own. And it seems to be an early uh, marker of inflammatory reaction uh, to uh, neurodegeneration. Uh, and um, has some pretty good correlations in ALS and Alzheimer's disease with both clinical measures. And in ALS, it actually correlates with survival. So these are the ones that we've looked at. Um, there's a few others that are of interest. So I know that um, chytotriacidases have been, have been of uh, great interest lately. Uh, we looked at that in our phase two trial. We saw that it was reduced after treatment and that we, we actually had an interesting observation, even in the run-in period, the level of chytotriacidase in the CSF uh, correlated with the ALS-FRS scores. So, so we think that immune markers are uh, measurable, that they are uh, intimately related with neurodegeneration, and I think they're, they're going to become more, even, even for treatments that aren't primarily immunological, I think that looking at the impact of uh, a treatment that reduces neurodegeneration on those markers might also be of value. Yeah, I agree. I mean, biomarkers are very, 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 very important. Uh, there's another question here for uh, Jean Loring. Could you cite any other similar study on biomarker therapeutics and why is your study uh, so unique? So is that the, um, the genomic analysis that we're talking about? Because I think so when you can detect things, you know, in the, yeah, in the yeah. So far, so far that's that in my, um, understanding it is unique we've been doing it longer than anybody else so we've got a better hold on it um, like flurry tests which uh, we published in 2011 and really didn't catch on till 2015 we suspect that, that kind of whole genome biomarker analysis is uh, is going to become more popular in the future it is remarkably uh, sensitive to slight changes and we've done single cell rna seq too to be able to see what the composition of the cell types are, but that's not practical for a, uh, a quick kind of assessment of the cells. So what we've done is use bioinformatics to link our single cell analysis to our bulk analysis. So it becomes more predictive. Oh, that's good. I think the cellular analysis is uh, really interesting. Um, so some question here more on testing. Maybe this is for Francis uh, Saldana. So I won't reiterate the question exactly, so it's a little controversial, but the gist of it is if you can have testing for Huntington's disease, you know, why couldn't we just eliminate it genetically? And I think that deep, that's a deep philosophical and moral question, Francis, but I know you might want to clarify a few things as well. You, you mentioned that you might want to clarify a couple of points from your, your discussion in the video, but I'll open that the floor to you to, to maybe talk about genetic testing, the complexities in Huntington's and, uh, and, and anything else you want to say quick. Yeah, I think what I'd like to address is the actual uh, clinical trials. Um, I know that uh, HD patients are, you know, usually very apprehensive about participating and uh, they really need to come forward uh, in order to assist in the success of the trial. Uh, however, it's very difficult for them um, 
because because they're so disabled. So what I, I think needs to happen as well is that um, for the clinical trial staff to go to the patients just the way Nancy Wexler and team did, go right to them because it's very difficult for them to travel um, because of their, their physical disabilities, uh, finances. So that um, I think that when the clinical trials are being um, developed, uh, HD families need to be a part of that. They need to be part of the design of the clinical trial and also the protocols uh, that are um, involved because they families know firsthand what the needs of the, the HD patient uh, is or are. So um, I, th I think that's critical. And I think if, if we can contribute to the success of the, um, the clinical trial, we really need to be fully engaged in, in the design and protocol of the trial right from the beginning. Go also for the, the, the to go to the, um, you know, to the communities that are underserved, because that's where you're gonna find the most Huntington's disease patients because of where Huntington's disease takes you, right? They take you to undeserved communities. Uh, so this is where you're gonna find the, more, mo the most participation. And it, that would be my recommendation as far as uh, clinical trials are concerned. Okay, um, I think that's a really important point. And it's lovely to get, you know, patient perspectives really make such a difference uh, from our side, from the research side as well. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, you know, completely agree with Francis, and they're very involved in our trial. Maybe to address that question, and Francis can jump in a little more too. It's just the whole idea of genetic testing. This has come up many times. Um, this exact question, but one of the things that is possible now is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, where uh, you have in vitro fertilization and select only the unaffected embryos to. Um, then implant uh, into patients, but it's very expensive and it doesn't always work. There's a lot of efforts by the community to go to insurance companies and try to have that done more frequently, but this is a worldwide disease. And again, that's a very expensive alternative. Many times, as Francis said, you don't know you have HD in the family necessarily, and then you've had your children by the time you even realize that it's in your family. So that does happen fairly frequently. Some people choose not to have children. Some people do and hope that, you know, there'll be a treatment. It, it's very, very complex um, question. Yeah, I, I think, and it's a whole, that would be a whole panel on its own. Yeah, it would. <laughs> ethics and uh, genetic testing and uh, yeah, very complicated. You, you mentioned price, Leslie, and cost of these therapies. And uh, there's another question here. Um, I think to Jeannie, but also to Ralph, you know, how much does it cost for autologous therapy, Jeannie? This is one of the things we talk about a lot is the expense of, you know, doing that for each individual patient, that wonderful process. Have you thought about that? And, um, I, you know, having said that, the, uh, I know Solgesma, which is the most expensive drug in the world, is about $3 million a dose uh, from Novartis. So, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> if you yeah, get proof of concept, yeah. but I'll, I'll, I'll let, what do you think uh, uh, about that, Jeannie? Right. So if you compare the two um, possible cell replacement therapies, which are either allogeneic or unmatched cells and matched cells, autologous cells, um, we think the cost is going to be pretty similar. I'm not telling you what that cost is because we really don't know yet. Obviously, as we get more, uh, the, the cost of goods, which is how you measure the kind of profit you're going to make off of a, of a um, 
of a treatment is very similar in the two cases because uh, we have more upfront cost um, with um, screening them. But as you know, those all those assays we've introduced allow you to just essentially toss out the cells if you if they don't pass that particular assay. And assays are inexpensive. So um, I think the actual cost will be, um, it's certainly, I think, I think we can go back to what um, Shinya Yamanaka has been saying over the years, because they started out thinking they would do autologous therapy and they thought it was too much because it would cost a, a million dollars a patient. And then I think at the next, the next yearly meeting, he said it would be $500,000 a patient. And so at that rate, it'll be you know, only a couple hundred thousand dollars per patient estimated for a Parkinson's disease cell replacement. Okay. Any other panel members have a thought on cost? I know, Ralph, your model is a little bit more maybe economical, um, but you, and you've been doing this a long time. Have you thought about the cost structure? Yeah, I think, I think there's some efficiencies that can be realized. And I think one efficiency is using uh, a two-step manufacturing process where the cryopreserved intermediate product can produce years of treatment. So then the initial sunk cost of acquiring and manufacturing the intermediate product can be uh, distributed over many doses. That's one, one efficiency. Uh, the other efficiency, of course, is uh, the location of manufacturing and the dif difference between clean room manufacturing and closed circuit bioreactors. Um, I think that that's coming. Uh, and I think that we will all be benefiting from those efficiencies, whether it's cell replacement or MSCs or other forms of cell therapy. So I'm, I'm actually optimistic that over time, the cost of goods will go down and make it more affordable. I think as technology advances, we'll be able to offer people uh, a product that, um, that's affordable and, and achievable. Right. I know there's a lot of questions. Sorry, sorry, Clive. We yeah, might want to point out, I think that in Leslie's case, in our case, we're thinking of a single dose, and that's obviously a, a cost factor as well. Exactly. Yeah, I think we, we had this discussion a lot, a one and done, as, as we say, and, and you know, uh, our trial's a bit like that. We're doing sales into the spinal cord for ALS. Um, and, and so that is that does affect the, the impact of the cost. It's the same with gene therapy. Gene, like, you know, the, the Zolgesma trial is just once, and that's it. And so that 3 million covers the whole lifetime of that kid. If, if they live to be 70, that's not a bad deal. If you divide it by 70, you're back into a regular price range. I've heard Amgen and other companies talk about other models for cost. If you, if you show, so if it's a one-time transplant, if you show biomarkers that, they're, that the cells still survive, in Leslie's case, for instance, that they're still making, you know, they're still dark positive, the insurance will keep paying as long as your cells survive, but if your cells die based on a biomarker, then you're not providing the drug anymore, then the insurance stops paying. So there are many, we're very creative at making money from drugs. I, I'm not really worried that that's going to happen. Wow. Um, so this is America. Right? And I have learned a lot in the last few years. Yeah, we yeah. <laughs> um, So I think, and I think that's, and that really benefits the patients at the end of the day, commercialization is where the rubber hit the road with these, with these uh, types of therapies, Francis. So having, we should have all these open discussions about commercial value and CERM is only going to survive if there's some commercial value to the state given all the investment. Uh, but it has to be done in an ethically uh, respectable way as well. And we have to really make sure the base of it, that the patients can afford it. And it's not just the wealthy patients get the therapy. And that, that's a dangerous, uh, uh, slippery slope we have to be careful of. Um, and that really involves the state and, and making these uh, therapies accessible to everybody and not being money dominated. And I mean, the yeah, companies, I 
yeah, the go companies ahead. can also partner with uh, patient organizations uh, because we can help, you know, in one way or another, either to bring the patients forward or to maybe um, fundraising, you know, so yeah, partnering with patient organizations would be great. I, I totally agree. I know the ALS Association has helped us a lot and, and um, Leslie as well. And I think, uh, and Ralph, so we've, we, it is a big partnership. Look, we have five minutes left, guys. Um, there are a few other questions. I think many of them are, are like, you know, when's it going to be ready? And the, the typical questions. And I think I can answer on behalf of everybody, you know, when it's ready. And safety studies are safety studies. I think Ralph is the furthest ahead and we're very excited for the top line data to come out, Ralph. Um, and I think maybe one question on that, and I want to finish on immunosuppression because you've all mentioned that in different ways. Um, but one question on that is for if, if the data comes out that you have had an effect with the placebo versus control. One, one question was, will you have a crossover? So you stored this MSCs from all the patients with the patients who didn't get it, then be able to get it. And, and I, given ALS is so rapid and you picked a rapid progressor, I think the answer might be they, they're so far, unfortunately declined at that point, it would be too late uh, because of the progression rate. You can do the math, unfortunately. Um, so the crossover may not work for a serious, you know, ALS is a very fast progressing disease. And the second part of that question is whether or not when you get your label, would it just be for fast progressors or do you think the label would work for fast and slow progressors? So there's two sort of embedded questions, Ralph. Yeah, so, well, thanks, Clive. Um, I'll take the second question first and then I'll answer the first question second. Um, so the, there, you know, obviously there, there are a number of other products in development that are looking at, you know, at the question of, is there a way of measuring outcomes that's more efficient? And the way we look at uh, rapid progressors is that in every group of disease, there are individuals who don't progress uh, for one reason or another, biological, environmental. It's impossible to determine exactly what are the drivers of progression or non-progression. Uh, because we have a run-in period and we're able to assess the trajectory for each individual, uh, we almost have a form of individual risk stratification uh, per se. And uh, this allows us to uh, do clinical trial enrichment and select individuals where we're more likely to power the study for an outcome. Having said that, uh, people have looked at the brains of ALS patients and they can't tell pathologically a difference between individuals who have faster and slower progression. It's not, there isn't a clear pathological biomarker. So we, we don't believe that being uh, smart about our clinical trial methodology precludes the possibility of those who don't have a certain rate of disease progression to respond. The other thing is that diseases are movies, not snapshots. So for example, at any one point in time, a snapshot might show someone to be progressing less rapidly. At another point in time in their disease, they may progress more rapidly. So, so I think that there's a logical fallacy of assuming that once uh, labeled that a person will always be fast or slow progressor. It's really, it's really a measurement thing. So that's, that's kind of the way we look at that. And we're hopeful that, you know, if we can show and demonstrate a meaningful clinical benefit that people will uh, realize that uh, it, the capacity to benefit is there. And we don't want to presume too much. And I'm sure that my co-panelists don't want to, even if they do decide to study a certain uh, phenotype of uh, disease characteristics, that it doesn't mean that the, their answers don't apply to other people with the disease. Will there, I'm going to have to stop because we're getting to the end, Ralph, but will there be a crossover, yes or no? 
So we're looking at that right now. I can't I can't announce anything on this, but okay. we're very actively looking at those possibilities. All right. And then I'll just say, you know, on the one and done versus Ralph's approach, the, the one thing that doctors like to do is do no harm. And the good news about giving something like Ralph's is that if it, if it has a bad effect and it, it's short-lived, the cells die after uh, two or three weeks. That's actually a good thing for the FDA because then you can stop if there's a side effect. The problem we have, and I'm putting myself in the same group as Leslie and Jeannie, is once you put those cells in, they're there for good. I mean, we can't re remove the cells. You could put a death gene in, but none of us have done that because it's very complicated. So, you know, there are good news and bad, like everything, uh, there's trade-offs. The last few minutes, let's just talk about immune suppression, guys, because I think, you know, Jeannie, you brought up an interesting point that iPS cells won't reject. Uh, I think it's a little more complicated than that because there are some papers showing iPS cells do reject because when you grow them in culture, Jeannie, they change. So maybe not as black and white. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry we haven't published that yet, Clive. We've shown that our, in our case, the cells are not rejected in, in, in vitro. Get on a portrait. We want to see it. Jeannie. I know. I know. I've, it's COVID's fault. That's why I haven't finished all those papers. All right. But we did do an extensive study to make sure there wasn't any sign of rejection as far as you can tell in vitro. Okay. Uh, obviously, we won't know until we put the cells into people whether there'll be any signs of, but, of rejection in vivo. That's perfect. That's a good, good response. And then, then the opposite side is that, you know, it may be that the brain protects cells a little bit more than the rest of the body. So just putting Leslie cells in, and I know the fetal transplants is very controversial, whether you even need suppression because of the, the brain protection and this innate ability of the brain to protect the, against immune system invasion. So it's kind of complicated on both sides. It's not really a black and white, but... I think we'll find out from a lot of the... Leslie, what's your thoughts? Yeah, and we're, we're actively looking into that quite a bit. That's one of the goals for Stem Cells 4-HD and, and actually talking quite a bit to G-Force um, folks, including Lorenz about, and Roger, about this exact issue and what we might start with and what the experiences from fetal cell transplants have been. Um, and, and there's some developing plans for, you know, short-term immunosuppression, longer-term immunosuppression, and, and we'll have to see how it goes with patients. We just don't know. So far, our, our data from the mice suggests that there would be at least some rejection of the cells without it. So, and I'll just finish it. I think we're at exactly the uh, end point. Um, and uh, I will just finish a week in our trial. We've had nine patients come to postmortem that had stem cells secreting GDNF into the spinal cord. Uh, they all had signs of transplant survival. We haven't published that yet, Jeannie. And working. We got caught in COVID because we couldn't close the trial out, and I can't publish it until top-line data is out. And it was interesting in that there were some patients who did come off suppression uh, fairly early on for various reasons or lowered suppression, and they still had a, a, a nice transplant. So, And that was for an engineered cell type. So I'm, I think the jury's still out, but I think we'll... The thing with CERN that's so fascinating and wonderful is that all these trials are going to build a very strong repository of data that we'll all share to get at this essential question of immune rejection. And, and without CERN, we would never have been where we are today. And, and trials are actually going on and we're understanding how the cells survive. And I'll, I'll put a big shout out for post-mortem studies because I think that the way to learn, we were lucky because GDNF labeled the cells, but the only issue is if, if you don't know it's human and human, you can't find the cells. We need to be clever, as we mentioned earlier, Detecting the cells in the brain and the survival, I think, is one of the key for all of the CERN trials. Is, is showing evidence that you have cells in the brain. And Francis, Ralph, Leslie, Jeannie, thank you so much for all the time it took to uh, put this all together.